You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Many of you will have heard the news that the greatest ever radio host, Rush Limbaugh, passed away today. I know for so many of you across the country, as he was for me, he was many things to us, a, a teacher, a patriot, an icon, a friend, uh, a familiar and friendly voice that you would listen to and that could make sense of everything, that would bring it all together for you, that you knew was on your side, that felt the way you did about momentous things happening in the country for decades. Rush created an industry in a sense that so many of us including myself now work in i mean conservative media without rush limbaugh doesn't even feel like it's a thing that would be possible would have been possible it doesn't feel like he he could have uh we, we could have been here without rush paving the way and now we no longer have that voice to guide us now we no longer have somebody who has that that gravitas that I know so many people who will tell me that they are, you know, rush babies or, or, you know, their parents have been listening to rush for 20 years. And it has always been the greatest compliment that I've received in this business. When people say to me, I listened, I listened to rush and I've added you in, you know, after I listen to rush, if I have time, I get to you. I've always taken that as nothing but the, the highest possible compliment for this craft. You know, it's like saying after I watch, after I watch, uh, you know, Tom Brady or, or Michael Jordan play at their absolute peak, you know, I'll flip the channel and give you, and give you some time, because Rush is the greatest. Uh, Rush is the greatest that's ever done this. He changed the trajectory of of this country. Um, he was truly gifted. I, I will tell you, I. I'll get into some of the more personal side of this, but I um, I learned the craft. I learned radio from Rush. By the time I went to work for Glenn Beck, now almost 10 years ago, uh, the person that I would listen to, the person who I would hear giving monologues and, and just speaking to the country. I mean, that's what he, he had this gift. You always felt like Rush was sitting in the room with you. You always felt like Rush was having a, a one-to-one conversation with you. It just so happened that it was you and millions of other people all across America. And he was, he was gifted. I mean, truly gifted. There are a lot of people that work in news media that they either get lucky or they just put in enough hours and they stick it out long enough that they get to a, a privileged position. Uh, Rush was in a different league. Uh, the way that he could weave stories, the way that he would hone in on the one detail, the one line of a news story that thousands, hundreds of thousands of other people would have read, but Rush would go on air and he would say, Here, here's the one thing that you, that you need to know about this that, that other people are either missing or don't want you to know about, don't want you to talk about. What would the Republican Party even be without Rush Limbaugh? What would conservatism in America be? He transcended news and was an icon and was somebody who was a cultural phenomenon to have had the reach that he had for as long as he did 
and to give people some sense that they did have a voice before the Internet really was a factor, before Fox News came on board. There was Rush. And I know there, there were other hosts and there were other you know, publications and people that were trying to make similar general arguments. But we had this. We had this superstar. We had this person who was able to take the feelings of the country in one moment and, and not only explain what's so important and educate so many of us at the same time, but to make us all feel like we were together. There was a community in listening to Rush Limbaugh. There was a, a, a connection that was there. And if you knew somebody else who listened to Rush, it, it was like talking about your fate. It was like you found out you were huge fans of the same sports team. You know, it's like you just met somebody. Oh, you're a Dodgers fan. I'm a Dodgers fan. You, you love the Giants. I love the Giants. You know, there was there was a bond there. There was a commonality for millions of people. And at a time when there were so few places you could go. Even though half the country roughly is Republican, a little more than that identifies as conservative. And certainly we're talking about, you know, over 100 million people, 150, 160 million people. And there are so few places you can go where you would hear what you knew to be the truth and you knew it was honest. And it was coming from a place of of both accessibility and genius. I listened to the greats. I knew that radio was something I wanted to do without ever actually really having done it. I just had a feeling and it was because I listened to the best. But no one, no one was ever in the same league as Rush. Nobody was ever able to capture your attention, make you feel like you are both getting the highest level analysis, but you're getting it from a close friend. There's nobody else out there who could do that. There are other hosts who have who have their talents and their skills and I recognize what they are. I, I, I try to learn from them. Um, you know, you know, who, you know, who some of the greats are, you know, when when Glenn Beck is in his zone telling a story, I mean, he's he is a gifted, uh, a gifted storyteller and is has amazing comedic timing. I mean, he has a lot of but Glenn Glenn would never say that, you know, he was in Russia's category, of course. Uh, no, none of us would. Right. You know, Sean is massively successful, enormously influential. But even even the great Sean Hannity knows there's only one rush. Rush is uh, rush is someone who I will say now I, I worry about what happens in the absence of his voice. You know, I've I've talked before about the need that we have at conservatism for unsinkable an unsinkable aircraft carrier of free speech. Well, we did have some innocent. We had Rush. They couldn't cancel him. They couldn't shut him down. They couldn't stop him. They couldn't buy him off. They couldn't threaten him into, into submission. They couldn't get him to just give up and reti- you know, retire early and play golf. I'm sure the pressures on him in, were, were enormous. But he showed up as a happy warrior day in and day out, and he fought until, and now this is apparent because of the news today, he truly fought until the very end. The very end. This was somebody who was who was uh, doing his life's work until the last moment that he could physically possibly do it. Think about the dedication. Think about the 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 desire for the absolute height of excellence 
in one's life's work, because that's what we're talking about with Rush and radio. What his life was devoted to was this, this ability to reach so many people. What a gift. I mean, he had talent on loan from God, as he said. And now I suppose he's going back and can thank God in person. It's kind of hard to think about, honestly. What, what does it feel like now making the case in this country without Rush? Um, we have, in a sense, lost our, our most formidable general for conservatism. That's how I would describe it. We've lost the one guy that we knew could go up against any movement, against any political machinery. He could go toe-to-toe with anybody, and he would make that case, and he could win. And uh, right now, there's nobody who has that ability. Nobody can step into that role. And, and then it also reminds me of um, what a debt of gratitude I owe to Rush Limbaugh there are very few times in my life that I could say I did not really think something was happening that was happening. As you all know, I started in radio uh, almost now nine years ago, I think it was. And I didn't even have a radio station. I didn't even have a terrestrial, uh, a terrestrial radio call letters that I could say. I was really just doing an, an Internet stream. And this was early on in that. I was doing a live, an internet stream at theblaze.com. We did it on the weekends, the original Saturday Squad. Some of you are still with me, and I'm very honored to this point. I remember the first shows that I did, I think I had a few dozen people listen. And I mean that, a few dozen. The first few radio shows that I did. And then it grew and it grew. And within 18 months or so of starting on radio, um, I... Was, I'm very blessed, and I, I will always be grateful to Glenn Beck for putting me in the game and putting me in that role. But I, um, I was able to get the phone call from Rush's people, and I remember it was Kit Carson who very sadly also passed away some years ago. I believe it was brain cancer. I'll remember Kit Carson called me, and his voice, he had a very, he was a radio guy too, and he was Buck Sexton? Kit Carson here from the Rush Limbaugh show. And I was just, I honestly thought that somebody was uh, having a go at me. I, I thought they were, I thought they, this was like somebody I worked with at the Blaze. In no way. And he said, how'd you, how'd you like to fill in on the Rush Limbaugh show? And this, I, I suppose, would have been like someone, you know, going up to a person who felt like they had just learned how to, how to pilot a, you know, a sailfish boat or something, you know, how to just, and somebody shows up and says, Hey, how'd you like to be in charge of a hundred million dollar super yacht for the afternoon? I mean, that's kind of what it felt like. Oh, okay. Um, here we go. And it was one of the, I, I've, I've had very few moments in my career where it felt like, um, I was, I feel, I, I'm sure a lot of people feel this way. I, I've had to be in the trenches. I've had to, earn every step that I've gotten and I've I've been denied a lot of opportunities that I think I should have had and uh, Rush Limbaugh though his show and it was with Rush's direct blessing so that's why I am thankful to him forever that was like a that was like being handed a gift from God that was something that I got you know I, I was blessed 
blessed uh, to be able to be at the EIB mic with less than two years of radio experience behind me and then to be invited back many times. Why do I even have a syndicated radio show today? Why, why do I have this, this very fortunate situation of being on over 200 stations today? It's because of Rush Limbaugh. So I'm in a business that is only possible because of this man who held it up like Atlas for decades. And I had a, my, my single biggest breakout of my career. It's the reason people say, oh, Buck, why didn't you do, you know, why didn't you go and build a YouTube channel years ago or do some of these digital things? Because I got a chance at the big, at the, uh, the big fill-in with Rush, and, and then I got put on syndicated radio. I was on terrestrial radio, and you know that, that seemed like my destiny. That seemed like my path. Again, only possible because of Rush. And I'm, I'm sorry to this day. I never, I never met him. Never met him. Um, I know that he, he has talked about me uh, numerous times in the past on his show. And I don't know. I must have f- filled in for him, hosted that show about a dozen times over the years, something like that. And it was always amazing. I'll never forget the first time I did it. Um, you know what? Let me, let me just take a moment here. I'll, 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 I want to get into a little bit more about that first fill-in for, for Rush. And we'll talk more about uh, his legacy. You're in the Freedom Hut. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Get the latest from Buck at BuckSexton.com. Coming back here again with the, the very sad news that Rush Limbaugh, greatest radio host of all time, has passed away today. And I was telling you all about the, uh, the first time I was ever able to fill in for him. I remember Kit Carson called me. And, and said, do you want to fill in for Rush Limbaugh? And I couldn't believe, couldn't believe that it was actually happening. And then, as some of you know, my, my uh, voice, my voice actually, and I, I know this sounds, this just sounds impossible. My voice, for the first time in my life, I had complete laryngitis from a cold two days before I'm supposed to fill in for Rush. And sure enough, um, they decided that I, you know, I was going to do it, and I had to go into the day before thinking I'm going to try to fill in for the greatest radio host of all time, and uh, the only I'm just going to try to do it, even though I actually don't have a voice. I actually do not have a voice, and I managed to find, with the help of my mother, my amazing. Always, always on the spot, always reliable, always getting it done, mom, the greatest. She got me a doctor who right in time gave me a shot of cortisone, which was going to open up my throat. I got the shot at 1045 a.m. And they said, you've got about three hours. This will work for. I said, well, that'll just get me through the show. I did the show. It went well enough that they had me back. I got through it. I was terrified during the show that I was just going to have to, they were going to have to go to tape because my voice was literally going to disappear. Like there would be, would be no voice toward the end. My throat started to close again and I got home. I, I think I, I think I was just, you know, shaking with anxiety for hours afterwards because I was so terrified at the prospect of being on the biggest platform, the biggest show of all time. Uh, and, and having my voice give out. I mean, it's like something out of someone's nightmare, but it didn't happen. 
I was fine. I got through it. It was a good show, not my best. And they had me back and had me back. And I got introduced to the family of millions, tens of millions of just wonderful people, patriots across the country who are Rush, who are the Rush Limbaugh family of listeners. And it changed my life. It changed the, the course of my career. Um, and it was, it's still one of the greatest blessings I've ever had. And it was all because Rush thought that this young guy had some ability and we should give him a shot. You know, I'm somebody who there are a lot of things in this business where people have said we could give him a shot. No, not him. No, not going to give, not going to pull him in, not going to make him this or that, or it's happened to me. I don't talk about it on the show. And some people in the business that, you know, have stopped me from getting shots. Some people that you would know have prevented me when I really needed an opportunity or a job from getting that job. And I know who's done it. And I'm, I, I think they should be ashamed, but you know, I, I won't get into it now. I've never done anything to, to this one person in particular, but neither here nor there. Rush gave me the shot. Rush changed my life. Not only did he teach me about politics for decades, not only was he the single greatest voice for our cause for all those years, but then I had the, the unbelievable fortune to be in a, a place where Rush Limbaugh and his team said, we think this Buck Saxon guy has some ability Let's give him a shot. And then they kept bringing me back. And they, they got me by putting me on that platform, by letting me borrow. I used to say borrow Uncle Rush's Maserati for the, for the day. That's what I called it when I would do his show. Uh, they, they gave me this show. I have it because of Rush Limbaugh. So I owe him a debt of gratitude I can, I can honestly never pay. And I just want to say um, he is the greatest. And thank you, Rush. God bless. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Follow Buck on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Well, look, if it were easy, it would have been done by now. And I think we may, we're making progress. I think having a roadmap back that the CDC put out is a good thing. Look, it's not a matter of whether kids should go back to school. It's a matter of how. And giving people the guidance. I talked to a governor this morning, um, around, I should say yesterday morning, time is just a weird thing, but uh, around how, what are the things that their school can be doing? And what, what was expressed in the call was he said, look, I know it's not going to be 100% safe, but get, you know, give me more measures and I can send more people back. And yes, there's emotions about this. And yes, there is, um, we're just getting new data, but being able to say, Look, we can do the more of these things we can do, having kids wear masks and all of the things that were in the CDC guidelines means we can bring kids back. And that's something that we have to stay committed to. Uh, and, and we are. But it's not whether it's how many kids have been out of school for more than a year and there have been no guidance to schools relatively speaking, until last week on what they can do to open up. So hopefully we'll now begin to push that process. I wanted you to hear that whole thing, because that's Biden COVID advisor Andy Slavitt. And he's a blathering moron. This guy's a moron. OK, he, he ignores all the all the things that we've learned, everything we've seen. This whole, oh, it's so complicated to send kids back to school. No, that's because they've created an artificial perception of control and an artificial promise of safety. It's not hard. You want to send kids back to school? Say, hey, everybody, kids are going back to school. End of story. Open up. Let's go. That's it. 
And then if there are any problems, if you've got people who are teachers who are older or comorbidities or whatever, they check it up with their school district and there should be accommodations made so that they can either stay home till they're vaccinated, which some of them are already vaccinated. Understand there are teachers who are vaccinated who still don't want to go into the classroom. Still too dangerous. Look, this is that the nation has embraced a a cowardice in day to day life right now. Unfortunately, far too many people are just the, the media and social media and all these. Oh, they just live in constant fear. Well, that's because there are people who want to control them and controlling a frightened population is much easier. It's also because the people in charge won't admit that they've been wrong, that they don't really know what they're doing. They've given terrible, not just advice, they've made horrible decisions for all the rest of us. Uh, if it were easy, it would have been done by now, he says on schools, Andy, Andy Slavitt. And this guy, I see his stuff on Twitter. He's been a jackass who's wrong about COVID all along. All along. His predictions are awful. His assessments are terrible. That's who this guy is. And yet he's telling us it, it would have already been done. It has been done. There are private and parochial schools across the country open and Florida is open. Every kid in Florida who wants to be in in-person instruction is able to under under the state laws right now and has been able to do that all along. So someone explained it. How is this so difficult? No, they're making it so difficult. They're making it so complicated. You, know, you should really see you should ask this guy. Uh, they, all, all you have to know is when you line up California and Florida right now, this is a huge problem for the lockdown libs who have been so smug. And I'm sorry, I do take this personally because they've ruined lives here in New York. They've made us all just tremendously depressed and, and anxious. And they've told us it's all for our, our safety. We, it had to be this bad. They had to shut down restaurants. And if you question it, why are you trying to kill people? They got all in your face and crazy. They were wrong. A bunch of hysterical nincompoops. Freaking out all the time. Where's your fourth mask? Quadruple mask. And now when you see what happened in Florida, you see what happened in California, an excellent apples to apples comparison. Nobody can avoid this anymore. So now the, the lib media is looking for, OK, what are our talking points on this? Come on, Biden experts. What are our talk? What do we say now? Because people who aren't complete morons can understand that if Florida's a little bit better than California in terms of covid situation and has been open this whole time, what the heck was the benefit of locking down California? Someone explained that to me. I can tell you who's not going to explain it. Biden COVID advisor uh, Andy Slavitt. Once again, play 12. Contrast states like Florida and California, um, California basically in lockdown and their numbers aren't that different from Florida. Well, good morning, Stephanie. Uh, look, there's so much of this virus that we think we understand, that we think we can predict that's just beyond a little bit beyond our explanation. What we do know is that the more careful people are, the more they mask and social distance and the quicker we vaccinate, the quicker it goes away and the less it spreads. But we have got to get better visibility into variants. We don't know what role they play, um, large events, et cetera. But, uh, you know, this is, a, as we all have learned by this time, this is a virus that continues to surprise us. Um, it's very hard to predict. And, you know, all around the country, we've got to continue to do a better job. And I think, I think we are, but we're not done yet. Just more blather, more blather, nothing from this guy. Did you, did you hear an answer in there? 
What we know is the stuff we've been saying all along is true. Well, hold on a second. If what you've been saying along is true, what about this huge real life case study of California versus Florida? And, and what Stephanie Rule said isn't even really correct. Florida's got better results. It's not that the results are close. Like that's that's, yes, accurate. But the more important assessment, the more important takeaway is no, no, no. Florida's actually done better than California while being open the whole time. So if all these things we're told to do, if all the mask, social distance, everything, this is really going to flatten the curve. It's really good. We need all these government mandates. We need all this propaganda all the time. Do this, do this, do this. We need social media companies to prevent open discussion. The social media companies are disgusting with the, with the censorship they're engaged in. Awful. The wokeness, the woke morons, these people that, that go work at these places now work in, you know, government relations or they work in, you know, media relations or marketing or PR or whatever. And they don't know. And by the way, they don't know anything about technology or anything else. They, they just go work in these corporations. Right. They didn't build these things. And they're all about the wokeness. And they shut down necessary. They shut down necessary public debate on a policy issue. Because they wanted to believe they were right. Well, they were wrong. They were wrong. The people that said you couldn't talk about mask mandates, you couldn't question them, you couldn't talk about lockdowns, you couldn't say they didn't work. They're wrong. And they used brute force of censorship to try to convince people otherwise. They tried to shut down this discussion. They tr they were a part of a massive lie here. And this remember, I'm not just having some random person that I'm playing you the the answers from here this is biden covid advisor andy slavitt this this is supposed to be the top the top expert on this this guy knows all the facts all the stuff you heard him asked about california and florida it's well you know it's really a lot of stuff and we don't know everything but we you know we know that everything we tell you is right that was his answer eh, wrong wrong we can all see it i'm not letting this go this is important this is a reminder about the need to defend your freedom this is important as a reminder about the need to hold back government overreach. There's a lot of layers here. There's a lot of stuff at work. And we shouldn't just pretend like, OK, we're going to get past this pandemic pandemic soon. They're going to do this again. They want to do this again. They loved the control. They were drunk with the power. Look at Cuomo. Look at Newsom. Look at Whitmer. You think they're just going to say, oh, yeah. We, we don't ever want to be in a position where we get to determine whose business survives and thrives and whose business gets shut down as long as we say so. You don't, you don't think they like that power? These climate change lunatics? You don't think they, they want to use that ability for something else? And all you really have to know about this guy, Slavit, I mean, with any, all you have to know is that he's now, I mean, you know, this, this for me is the intelligence test. The people who have, are suddenly double maskers let me be clear if you were double masking for you know if you're a public health expert or somebody who works in and by the way it's totally different people in a hospital setting who are dealing with sick patients you know whatever you know you know additions whatever, whatever things they want to do i i of course you can understand that right because they're, they're clearly being exposed to virus all the time but in a in, in a setting where they know they're being exposed so of course they're going to take additional precautions this is also why they have those like papr hoods and all these things this is why they have much more than just a cloth mask in a lot of circumstances dealing with covid patients because they understand what the risks are but i'm talking about for everyday for everyday people who are supposed to be experts but aren't actually treating covid patients 
If they have been wearing two masks all along, I just want to know, why didn't they believe in the science nine months ago, six months ago, three weeks ago? Why haven't they been wearing two masks all along? Now, suddenly they've discovered that this is more effective. Well, all you have to know about somebody is, are they suddenly a double masker? And if the answer is yes, they are a sheep. They're a person that cannot think for themselves. Now, I'm not talking to people that are made to do this, because guess what? That's coming your way, too. Already, you have a federal courthouse now in New York where the, where the rules are now, we want you to double mask. You're going to see more of it. I told you. It starts out with the, hey, this is more effective. And then it's, hey, maybe do this. And then it's, do this or else. Give it time. You'll probably have double masking on, air, on airplanes. Oh, yeah. Double mask on that airplane. Not enough to have a, a scarf or a, you know, one of those uh, gaiters or whatever. No, no, you, you got to have the full, the N95 and a cloth mask, all this stuff. Here's, here's a COVID advisor, Slavit. Loves the way those double masks feel. Play, t- play 11. Should we be wearing regular masks, two masks, N95 masks? What's the best recommendation at this point? Well, so if you're, if you're not wearing a mask at all, wearing a mask over the nose and mouth, well-fitting, Bingo, that is the most important thing. Um, I wear a surgical mask with a cloth mask over it, and I do that because the surgical mask is good, but it doesn't fit as snugly as when I put a second mask over it. I think we're learning that the better the mask, the better. Not all of us can wear N95s. We need those for our healthcare workers, but if you have those, those are the safest. Otherwise, you know, I think what I'm doing feels very effective. You can tell when your mask is snug, uh, and, and if it's not snug and if air is getting out and air is getting in, then it's not doing its job. I told you how many months ago they're going to claim after the second wave rips through the whole country and we don't stop it, we don't even slow it, they're going to claim that we didn't mask well enough. That's going to be their answer. Because I knew. And here we are, exactly as I said. So why is that? Because it's about understanding the mentality of the petty authoritarian. It has nothing to do with science or medicine or some fancy degree from uh, from a, an Ivy League university in microbiology, which a lot of these people don't even have anyway. It has nothing to do with that. It's about understanding the mentality, looking at results. It's about logic and drawing truthful conclusions based on what people have told you and what has happened. If you can do that, you know what these lockdown clowns are going to say next, as I have. And Slavit is just another example of it. Oh, yeah, I can't explain to you why California is worse off than Florida, even with the lockdowns. I'm going to tell you that we can't open schools. It's too complicated, even though schools are open. And oh, yeah, now double masking is definitely the way to go. Suddenly, in the middle of February, 12 months into this pandemic. Sure. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Follow Buck on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. It's it's not a trick question, and I feel like you guys have treated it like a trick question. I think people just want to know what the White House position is on whether or not teachers have to be vaccinated for kids to return safely to school. The CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, says the science is that teachers don't necessarily have to be vaccinated for kids to return. And I think people want to know what the White House position is on that. The White House position is that uh, and the president and vice president believe that teachers should be prioritized for receiving the vaccination, along with other frontline workers. And in at least 22 states in the District of Columbia, that's exactly what's happening. Prioritize is one thing. And I think there's wide agreement. They should be prioritized. And why not? Is it necessary? 
though? That's the question. It really is a yes-no question. Well, John, I think the real question, frankly, if I can be frank here, is what you're getting to is, is it safe for kids to go back to school? And the president it, it, and vice actually president... Actually not. In this case, that's not the question. The question is, is it safe for teachers to go back to school? And that's, and, and that, that's a very specific question in this case. And again, I'm not sure... I don't understand why it's a hard question to answer. It, it may be that you want every teacher to be vaccinated. It may be the answer is, yeah, teachers should, if they can be vaccinated before they return to school, but it's not necessary. Well, John, I think the president has been clear, the vice president has mm. been clear, and I think I was really clear just now that it is the administration's position, the president and vice president believe that teachers should be prioritized for vaccinations. She can't answer the question. They won't answer the question. And I, I, I thought that was an interesting exchange, even though I, I know it was on CNN, because I believe that at some level there are people who work at CNN, there are libs, there are Democrats out there right now who are are finding out for the first time about this Biden administration that they're actually a bunch of clowns and and they don't want to tell you the truth about school reopen. They want to keep running in these circles. They want to keep playing games because this is about politics. It is not about health. I think there are some people on the left, believe it or not, some some Democrats, at least, including uh, this John Berman at CNN, who are going, hold, hold on a second. It is safe for kids. We all know that. So is it or is it not safe for teachers to go back and do their jobs when you have already millions and millions of frontline workers of all kinds around the country who have been doing their jobs the whole time without vaccinations? Yes or no? Why are and because if, if the answer is no, then why are teachers so special? Is it because teachers give a lot of money to the teachers unions give a lot of money to Democrats? So are they really just politicizing schools here because of the Democrats? Oh, you know, they will never say that on CNN. But what they've realized is there is no other answer. There, there is nothing else. They've they've run out of maneuver room here. It's just keep now. It's just spinning circles. Just keep saying nonsense. It's exactly what what you heard there. Are schools safe to open? Yes. Should they be open? Yes. End of story. That's it. There's nothing else. But they won't say that because there's one hundred and twenty billion dollars riding on this covid relief bill for the schools and the teachers unions want all kinds of concessions. They want to they want to just squeeze every last drop of benefit they can out of this crisis for themselves, for their adult members, pretending they're doing it for kids. They're absolutely not doing anything for these kids. They're hurting children. Actually, they're hurting their development. They're hurting them psychologically and they don't care. It's the other part of this. You got to remember. They simply don't care. They have more important priorities. You're seeing this good, good old Grandpa Joe. Grandpa Joe apparently doesn't care about the grandkids actually getting back to school anytime this year. Oh, no, but I'm sure his grandkids all go to private school, which have been open and which have been fine. Gee, I wonder why that is. Hmm. What's happening there? School choice when it comes to Democrats, a huge weakness for them because they have no principled argument to make. They can't even pretend. And it's true about these school lockdowns, too. They can't even pretend they have a principled argument. It doesn't exist. This is Buck's First Thoughts, the news you need to get through your day in 45 minutes. Make sure you subscribe on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Joe Biden was sold to the American people in this last election as a guy who nobody should be unnerved by no one should be scared of he's going to be just fine he's been around so long you can trust good old joe 
That's the pitch. That was what was bought, unfortunately, in this last election. That's where we are. And last night, you started to see what that actually looks like in even more detail with the CNN town hall. Now, town hall. now understand, now the CNN town hall is going to be skewed. They're going to pick things that make Democrats want to keep watching. And they're going to have people that it's almost like the CNN producers are writing some of these questions for them. You know, given our concerns about the lack of D and I or diversity and inclusion for senior corporate board seats in some of our major uh, populous states, what can you do? You know, stuff It's like, yeah, that's really what's on the top of every American's mind. There was a lot of covid talk last night and there was a lot of meandering nonsense about schools and why they haven't reopened. And really just some of the same stuff you've heard from Biden all along. So I wanted to dive into some of this because. Here's the basic, the basic conclusion that we're going to come to together. Joe Biden is now a man of the left because that's what he has to be, because that's what the Democrat Party is. He doesn't have any real beliefs. There's no core principles. There's no policy goal in mind for him other than be Joe Biden. Do what the Democrat Party tells you. Get elected, I, I suppose, once again. But now he's the president. He's got this job. He's going to do what they tell him. He wants the system to be backing him up. And he's just whatever they need him to be. That's the whole point. Obama ran as a uniter and then governed as a leftist. Biden ran as, well, good old blue collar Joe that you know you could trust who's going to be a moderate. And he, too is already governing like a leftist because this is what the Democrat Party is. The machinery around him is what really matters. That's what determines the direction of all of his policy goals. That's what determines his decision making more than anything else. Here he is. Well, let's go through some of these. First of all, this was the one that got a lot of attention immediately during the town hall. Joe Biden on CNN. There was no vaccine when Joe Biden came into office. This is what he said. Play two. And uh, the biggest thing, though, as you remember, when you and I, I shouldn't say it that way, as you remember, but when you and I talked last, we talked about it's one thing to have the vaccine, which we didn't have when we came into office, but a vaccinator. How do you get the vaccine into someone's arm? Which we we didn't have. Yeah, there, there was no vaccine. Joe Biden was just down there in a lab like a little chemist with some Bunsen burners. And it was like, no joke. I got the I got I got the coronavirus vaccine all fixed up here. No joke. Got it all good to go down in my Delaware lab. Full stop. Yeah. Now people jumped on this because, of course, it's not true. But I think it's worth noting that the media always gives him a pass. They were already people tweeting out from the blue check journo set. Oh, that's not what he that's not what he meant. Okay, but it's not their job to say what he meant. It's their job to call out what he said, something that is So clearly untrue, but that wasn't their first impulse. So you see from the media what they're really all about. You see from the media that this is going to be nothing but a cheerleading section for the next four years if they have their way the next eight. And as we know, whenever whenever all of a sudden Kamala Harris steps up into the role, whenever that will be, uh, they'll continue it for Kamala Harris too. this. This is the plan. We, We see all of this. Um, Another area where Biden uh, had to speak up was on 
ending the insanity of defund the police as a common Democrat talking point for at least right now at the national level. Play three. Defund the police is discussed as an option for reforming policing. However, there are communities where people live in fear, not of the police, but in fear of the violent gangs who commit crimes in those neighborhoods. How can we be sure that we don't over-legislate police officers so that they can't do their job to protect the law-abiding citizens who live in these high-crime neighborhoods and yet train officers to police with compassion? By number one, not defunding the police. We have to put more money in police work. So we have legitimate community policing and we're in a situation where we change the legislation. No one should go to jail for a drug offense. No one should go to jail for the use of a drug. They should go to drug rehabilitation. Always speaking around the issue. Good old Grandpa Joe here talking about not defunding the police. Now, isn't that interesting because you had so many Democrats over the summer who are willing to say this because the political winds have shifted a bit. One of the reasons is that places where there was some effort at either defunding or even just a conversation about defunding like Minneapolis have had big spikes in violent crime. All right. Have had big challenges with surges in criminality that have come right along with when BLM movement protests were happening and riots were happening. Well, what is the Democrat answer to this? We need more funding for community police. Throw more money at the problem. Last summer, it was we need less funding for police, which was idiotic. But people said that because the police become, in essence, to the far left in this country, instruments of the state that stand in the way of whatever the left wants. Right? The left believes that there's all this oppression in this country, that criminality comes from poverty, comes from oppression, comes from all these different things. And therefore, it's really our fault as a society. And so we should all suffer. If we have to all live in higher crime neighborhoods where people are randomly attacked, raped, murdered, assaulted. And as you know, most of the crime increase happens in major cities in predominantly minority neighborhoods, which means that it is predominantly minorities who suffer as a result of these bad policies. It's it's heinous when elite libs, which, you know, they do all the time on CNN and elsewhere, pretend that, oh, there's no there's no correlation between more police and less crime. There's no correlation between political backing for police officers and people being more safe on the streets. They say that while they have doormen on the Upper West Side and access to nearby precincts that are well staffed and that they know are going to show up quickly while they have, you know, the county sheriff, just a quick phone call away in Malibu, you know, whatever. No crime in their neighborhoods to begin with. And if there is crime, they're going to call the cops right away. Democrats are frauds on this issue. And now Joe Biden is walking away from where his party was on this just just a little bit because he realizes that it's bad for them. It's bad for them over the long run. It was one thing when BLM riots were happening all summer and it was about Trump and getting rid of Trump. But now, sure enough, they have to convince people that they're not the reason for this big spike in crime. And they are. And this is going to be an issue for them going into the midterms, too. But notice how Biden turns this into a conversation about no one should go to jail for using a drug. Is that really the problem? When I'm talking about shootings and homicides and rapes and assaults and burglaries, 
The Democrats go, oh, but, you know, what about nonviolent drug offenses? Those are not the same thing. They, they, talking about one is not talking about the other. But remember, when Biden, when it was politically expedient for Biden to be Mr. Tough on Crime in the 90s, he put his name on that crime bill. Now he repudiates it. And then when it was useful to attack Trump, he was all in favor of BLM riots and was pretty quiet on the issue of defunding police. Let the activist class have it say there. And now that he's president and the crime numbers look terrible for last year and everybody can see it's BLM. Oh, now he's saying, well, we're not. Let's just get more money to them and create more training programs and community policing and essentially look at this as like a jobs program. Right. Not not for just run of the mill cops, but I'm sure they're going to have more social workers and more. You know, they, they just want more, more spending, more taxpayer dollars. The spending is going to be mind blowing. You're going to see from this Biden administration. And, and I do worry about what it's going to do with inflation. And inflation is one of those things where you talk about it and people don't get scared. Uh, but when they actually feel it and see it and when it gets out of control, then they are scared. Because inflation can destroy an economy and with it a society. And we are playing a very dangerous game right now with how we're debasing our currency. I know they tell you it's not happening, but it's a function of math. And Biden's talking about one point nine trillion of spending for covid relief. That's just the beginning. They're going to go well beyond that. You just just wait and see. They're going to spend money like like nobody's ever spent money in this country's history. That's the Democrat plan. Modern monetary theory without calling it that. And Joe Biden's going to be leading the charge. But just remember, he's he's good old Grandpa Joe. He's not a radical. Sure, some of his policies make all the radicals in our midst seem happy. And he never seems to be able to stand up to the crazier side of the left wing and and tell them that this is not going to work out for the country in the long in the long run. No, whatever he needs to say when he needs to say it is what he says. That's the Joe Biden way. 